Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Ewan, how often do you find yourself made uncomfortable by my controversial views? (laughs) (laughs) We never discuss politics, Stephen. (laughs) Never. Never, indeed. Well, I mean, that's a bit disturbing, considering this is actually, we're making a show out of it, but... (laughs) This is a survey that has come from the HR company HiBob talking about people talking about uh, what they call socio-political discussion. Yeah, what a at phrase that work. is. Indeed, right. not defined. We should point out in this survey, but it's two thousand people that were surveyed by the company and finding that forty-five percent of British workers believe that socio-political discussion should be kept out of the office, which I think is reasonably sensible in most cases, but. Interesting also that they asked for companies or workers' views on how, what their company's political stance were. And 27% of people that were surveyed said that their company's opposing political stance would prompt them to leave where they were working. Yeah, so my first thought on reading this, so a quarter of people say they would quit their jobs mm. if they didn't agree with their company's politics. And my first thought was, mm, people say a lot of things to pollsters, don't they? Would, <laughs> would a quarter of people really walk out of their jobs over politics i do kind of wonder if when push comes to shove they would actually do that but i think do think it raises an interesting issue doesn't it because i think working in the news media you're uber careful about not getting involved in contentious discussions in the office and certainly not tweeting things mm. but i think at some companies there is probably less pressure on that sort of thing and, and i do wonder what goes on uh, at some you're asking what it's like in the real world is that what you're wondering i'm asking what it's like in the real world exactly yeah. and certainly we know it's like a monzo at least according to reports uh, in the, the telegraph remember monzo popped up in the uh, papers the other day when it emerged that the chancellor had been rejected for an account now the telegraph is reporting details of some, of some uh, pretty uh, stark discussions uh, internally on slack which is an instant messaging service which described the conservatives as evil and celebrated Tory election losses and lots more stuff uh, besides. I think it does raise interesting questions, doesn't it, about uh, how the banks operate and about uh, politics around banks well, and a lot of Tory it's, MPs. Are I mean, the, the reason this story is interesting is because Jeremy Hunt was turned down for an account at Monzo. We've been talking about the interaction between politicians and banks because of the story around Nigel Farage's account at Coots. Obviously, a much bigger controversy and for slightly different reasons. I mean, it just sort of reinforces the never write anything down, and especially not in a professional environment. You know, you might hold your controversial view, but just don't put it in writing. Yes, indeed. But if you had the discussion in the pub or even in the uh, even in the office canteen, it would probably be okay, wouldn't it? Or, or uh, less bad. It certainly wouldn't appear in the Telegraph. 
no, indeed. I mean, which, <laughs> um, take from that what you will. Um, let's turn to details, though, of a Bloomberg investigation that we have for you today on the subject of energy. And one of the UK's biggest energy producers has managed to avoid repaying hundreds of millions of pounds to households during the energy price spike of the last year. The company called Drax didn't break any rules, but took advantage of a loophole in a subsidy agreement with the government. So much so that three former UK energy secretaries have told Bloomberg that Drax appears to have violated the spirit of its 2014 agreement with the government. Joining us now to discuss is our energy reporter, Todd Gillespie, who wrote the story. Todd, great to have you with us. Can you first of all tell us about Drax and what sort of business they do? Sure. So they're basically um, formally, they, they, they own one of Britain's largest power plants, it used to be the, the country's largest power plant, um, used to run on coal, now it runs on biomass, which is in theory a, a renewable form of energy. Um, it's made from waste wood that's ground down and crushed into pellets, um, largely in the US South, and then it's transported across the Atlantic to be burnt um, in this massive power station in Yorkshire. The company also has some smaller generation um, in other parts of the country, but it's mainly based at this massive uh, power station at Drax in basically, which is next to Selby, the small village in Yorkshire in northern England. So it all sounds sounds well and good, but how is it supposed to work and what went wrong? Yeah, so in, in 2014, they signed an agreement with the government that meant from a few years later when this this contract kicked in, uh, they would start receiving subsidies to ensure that burning biomass to produce electricity was profitable. It's quite an expensive way to produce electricity, so um, making sure that you have these subsidies that give you these top-ups allowed it to be competitive, allowed it to provide you know secure, stable energy supply to the country. And since December 2016, the company's received about £1.4 billion from consumer bills. There's basically green levies that are added to your household bills um, in order to make sure that the company can generate and basically its shareholders can um, find value and the company can make profit. Um, And the idea was that if the market price ever went above this pre-agreed strike price, it's called, um, then the company would start sending money back to consumers. And obviously that happened last year with energy prices skyrocketing on the wholesale market. So it was kind of the perfect time for these contracts to kick in, for consumers to start start seeing some relief, start seeing some, you know, reciprocation from the uh, subsidies that they've paid out for many years. But it didn't happen. The repayment never happened. Why? Indeed, yeah. So the company basically started reducing output at its plant um, in, in this one unit uh, that's on this scheme in April last year. It moved its fuel to these other generators that it has and also delayed uh, delivery for more profitable times and also sold some of its supply on the open market. Um, some of the supply that it locked in at low prices, it sold for a profit um, when biomass prices spiked in Europe's market. So it was able to basically optimize that the company is the term the company used optimize its supply chain uh, to produce more profit Um, but that meant that this you know in theory this sort of promised this um, planned payback for consumers never really happened and they've avoided paying as we've calculated as much as 639 million pounds that would have gone to help subsidize consumers bills at the height of this historic inflation crisis well yeah that is that is a huge amount of money so basically they stopped producing power just when we needed it and they they instead flogged the pellets on the open market now they haven't broken the law at all here have they what does Drax say in response yeah so Drax say that the 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 global biomass market was quite disrupted because of Russia's war in Ukraine Um, you know that's that's partly true but Drax gets very very few of its uh, pellets from 
um, from Ukraine and from Russia. Um, and also it says that it had basically locked in these contracts, locked in um, its power sales at its other generators in advance of uh, locking in sales on this CFD unit, it's called, which meant that it had basically already used up um, its cheaper, long-term, uh, stable supply. And if it had run this generator, the company claims that it might have exposed itself to uh, base- basically losses. So is it that the contract was at fault or is it just that perhaps there wasn't a, you know, the, the government wasn't prepared for this sort of price spike to happen that allowed this space, I suppose, for uh, Drax to be able to, in their words, optimise their production? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And obviously, this was designed, this contract was designed several years ago when, you know, it was different government, different people running the company as well. Um, one thing to note is that Drax uh, has, you know, it, back when it signed the contract, it was really just a power production company. You know, the global biomass market wasn't as developed back then as it, as it is now. There weren't really the same opportunities to arbitrage in the way that the company's been able to do now. So, you know, these kinds of options that have opened up to it, weren't really around at the time and maybe policymakers at the time didn't quite realize um, that, you know, maybe there should have been some lines in the contract that could have helped, um, you know, avoid or help prevent the company from doing this or mandated it in some way to run this unit ahead of its others, you know, perhaps when prices were higher, uh, when payback would have happened, you know, there are all these potential other ways that it could have been designed. Um, But as you say, yeah, the company hasn't necessarily broken any rules of the contract, um, but it's certainly, you know, the, the, the upside of the contract was was really put in place specifically because all subsidies beforehand were just one way you know it was consumers topping up companies and the whole idea of cfds was that there would be a kind of a a, a dual um function here so that you know consumers might get some payback at some point when they needed it most yeah and indeed the the criticism in your reporting coming from former energy secretaries the likes of ed davey saying that this was gaming the contract and the part of drax uh, as well so that is uh, certainly one of the political viewpoints on that subject Todd, thanks so much for explaining that to us. Really fascinating reporting. Todd Gillespie, our energy reporter. You can read Todd's uh, piece on the Bloomberg website and on the Bloomberg terminal. I want to get a bit more analysis on this now with uh, senior economist at the Resolution Foundation, Johnny Marshall. Um, Johnny, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, This £600 million is a huge amount of money. Just explain to us if there's been a a net cost to households. Has this actually cost us money? Um, It's definitely at the wrong time and yeah as you as the previous guest said it's prevented energy bills being pushed down at a time when that was needed the most i think it's worth remembering the context of which this has all happened you know last year we saw energy bills jump to double their historic levels we had around 80 percent of households reporting they were cutting back on their energy use we've seen arrears so that's households that can't afford their bills um the amount of debt for those households has tripled in the past three years um and of course these are all concentrated towards households on lower incomes so news that sort of companies were using loopholes in the system and sort of playing against the spirit of the rules say um comes at quite a bad time especially when you know the, the energy crisis has not gone away people are still worried about energy bills this winter on two-thirds of households are reporting that they are worried or very worried about paying their bills this winter um and the news that you know tracks has been um making money off, off on top of its already very healthy subsidies is um, probably hard to hear for many at the moment 
Yeah, that's important context and, and thank you for reminding us of it. Johnny, I wonder though what lessons we should draw from this. We know that investment in renewable energy is a huge amount of money. The the government is you know talking with energy companies. It's actually a meeting happening this morning uh, with some of them as well, discussing more investment in Britain's power generation. What do they need to rethink in these contacts, tra- contracts to avoid this happening? So you're right that a huge amount of investment is needed, probably getting on for about £100 billion worth of investment in the electricity system by the end of this decade. And it's absolutely essential that that's um, done in a fair way. So that's making sure that these sort of systems and these sort of policies and these sort of markets um, work in the way to bring that investment forward. So they do offer investors the certainty they need to access lower cost of capital so that the overall cost of these new ways of generating electricity is lower. But they need to, on the flip side, baking a lot of consumer protection as well. Obviously, when when previous deals have been done, there was no expectation that energy prices were going to soar to the levels that they have done. But now it's expected that volatility will be here for a lot longer. So potential measures to cap revenues as well as offer flaws on revenues, which the, the contract for difference has done, they could be explored. Um, potential revenues to ensure that paybacks to customers actually do happen, um, whereas there, was, there had to be some changes in the rules to make sure they did happen at the start. Um, but also making sure that the the overall view and the overall sort of strategy for the electricity system is one that is going to bring the lowest cost, and that means looking to where electricity can be generated the cheapest, how it can be generated the cheapest, and how it can be delivered to people the cheapest. Johnny, would it be fair to say that this is really the government's fault and the fault of the people in the uh, the civil service who who draft these contracts? The company was simply doing what it wanted to do, uh, given the contract. Uh, It didn't break the rules at all, so surely someone else is to blame here. So it's an interesting situation with Drax because it's received different types of subsidies for its different um, parts of the power station. And the overall goal across these, these four different power out power generators was to impose a limit on how much um, electricity from biomass could be generated. So that's how, it, that's how they're able to move output from one to the other but still be under the, the sort of auspices of the rules. Um, but setting that as a priority meant that perhaps the consumer protection side was overlooked. So, you know, with a, with a lot of um, with a lot of sort of policy up for debate at the moment, especially surrounding Drax, because all those Drax subsidies end in 2027. So, you know, the future of that power station is very much up for debate at the moment. Um, policymakers need to be sure that anything that is, that, you know, that the next wave of these contracts um, are more beneficial for households than they perhaps have been in the past. So what what are the key guardrails then that need to be going into these discussions of new contracts? So um, with the contract for difference, it sets a, a floor on the price. Um, so anything over the price, um, as has been done, can be sort of banked by these companies. Um, that should be that should probably be reviewed in a way that um, you know offers the, the offers benefits to both the, the power generators by by giving them a sort of a um, a secure revenue that they can plan for and base their investment cases around. Um, but it also needs to be done in a way that doesn't mean that there sort of can be you know, unlimited costs passed on to consumers. Um, but we also need to look at how to how to move the electricity around as cheaply as possible. Um, so one unusual thing with Drax is it's a, 
a sort of legacy of the power system of old, and that it's a big power station in the middle of the country. And this means it's incredibly useful for generating electricity where it is and where it needs to be. But there's, again, tens of billions of pounds of investment needs to be in our um, electricity network as well. And at the moment, this is all funded through bills and funded through bills in quite a regressive way. So it's based on just there's a charge per household rather than how much you use. Um, these are all things that, that should be up for review. And the government's doing a lot on this at the moment. There's a big a big sort of review of the electricity markets and the policies and the, um, all the ways in which investment is put into the system. Um, and hopefully this will be done both in the way of getting to net zero as quickly as possible, because obviously the electricity system underpins both well, both the energy we use at home, but will also underpin how we drive our cars around and how we heat our homes in the future. So we're going to need an awful lot more of it. Um, and it's vital that you know this is done in a way that is, is, is as fair as possible. Johnny, can we draw any wider lessons about the structure of the of the electricity market from this? Um, probably can, yeah. So at the moment, you know, recently we've been very much reliant on one policy tool, and that is the contract for difference to fuel the sort of UK's renewable push. Um, you know, nothing, nothing is nothing is delivered on any of the contracts at the moment, and um, we're starting to see some cracks in in the sort of efficacy of, of the contract for difference. So there's a new a new results round coming up soon for the next wave of offshore wind farms, um, and it's widely expected that this is going to be not as good news as we've seen in the past. You know, we've got a lot higher cost of interest now. And there are more planning restrictions and more environmental restrictions around where these wind farms can go. And that means that the cost of these might start to um, either not fall as quickly or even sort of plateau or potentially even rise from what we've seen in the past. Um, and this sort of brings in the wider sort of strategic question of how we're going to you know, build enough capacity to finish off the last bit of coal we've got on our system, but also to replace the 40% of electricity that's generated gas from gas with renewable sources. And it's it's growing ever unlikely that relying on one single policy is mm. is probably not the best option. So we need to look at you know the different investment cases for different types of technologies, the different ways of paying for them. You know, is it is it a, is it a a good idea to start thinking if more more of this should be paid for through, through general taxation rather than through energy bills, as as has been the case in other countries, um, and you know how how best to come at it from a sort of you know an overall view that rather than just looking at the electricity system in isolation and saying, oh, let's build as many wind farms in the North Sea as we can, yeah. to do it in a way where you think about, you know, how can we incorporate, you know, car batteries into this storage? How can we change for different load profiles when people use heating um, that's run, run through electricity? And this all, sure. this all comes back to sort of a wider strategic choice about how to kick on with electricity decarbonisation um, so they can underpin everything else. Okay. All right. Resolution Foundation Senior Economist Johnny Marshall, thanks very much for joining us uh, with your insights on that. Interesting to hear that uh, from Johnny Marshall there, of course, in the context of discussion we've been having all week about the Conservative government's green priorities and this sort of shift that we've seen, Vishy Sunak making comments comments about, uh, you know, being pro-motorist and, and this was in the context of the broader political conversation being had. Interesting to check in on that part of the story as well. Um, I want to talk, though, a little bit about another plan we're getting from the Prime Minister 
Uh, are you a chess player, Ewan? Important policy announcement. Well, we should have a little jingle or something. <laughs> uh, I mean, I actually think this is quite a fascinating idea. So Rishi Sunak wants to try and get, um, as our colleague Alan Milligan has put it, get Britain to embrace its nerdy side uh, by pushing into more funding uh, for chess. Half a million pounds going to the English Chess Federation to help them to send teens to international tournaments, uh, but also support more playing of the game in schools. There would be more public places where you can play chess. You're, yeah. you're smiling. Well, I'm, is that I'm nostalgia just, I'm well, no, no, I've just kind of amused it. If there's a sort of nerdy theme amusing, uh, uh, emerging from number 10, uh, and I'm not sure if, it, if, if it's because Rishi Sunak wants to sort of paint himself as a kind of, uh, sort of, uh, you know, this clever nerd, or possibly he's just interested in maths and chess. Well, there, there's all the questions about how good this is for, you know, in terms of skills development and giving people, you know, a different sort of uh, set of intellectual skills to prepare them for life and be productive workers and all the good things that we're um, hoping for out of the future generation as well. I mean, look, it's it doesn't quite compare to a pledge about maths, but I'm interested in it. I also want to know if it's going to lead to a revival of Chess the Musical, which is a totally different story. <laughs> Why am I not surprised by that, Stephen? <laughs> I, I don't like to surprise you too much in the programme. I, I think we should do a, a, a nerdy pivot now to talk about sophology. Uh, another week, another by-election, but this time a test not for Rishi Sunak, but for Hamza Youssef and the SNP. This after Margaret Ferrier, who breached COVID rules, was removed from her seat after more than 10% of electors in her constituency uh, signed a recall petition. She's been sitting as an independent since she was suspended by the SNP back in 2020. Joe Mays from our politics team has hot-footed it uh, into the uh, podcast studio. Joe, many of us uh, try to forget 2020, but just take us back to October of that year and why Margaret Ferrier got into trouble. Yeah, so effectively she broke coronavirus regulations by you know taking trains from Westminster back up to Scotland uh, when she was you know, waiting for a coronavirus test and so on. So yeah, there was, there was a breaking of the rules and Parliament suspended her. And as you said, that led to this recall petition. And now we're going to have this by-election. So yeah, as you say, big test for the SNP. Can they still hold that seat? And crucially, how well are Labour doing in Scotland? That's what everyone will really be looking at. How, does that poll lead they have translate into seats? And you know, winning in Scotland is seen as crucial if they want to win the next general election. Yeah, it certainly does. Also, interesting time to sort of take the take the temperature in Scotland about how those two combining forces are doing. What are the what are, what are the comp, what is the competition looking like in that uh, that constituency? Yes, yeah, so. The SNP are clearly in a period of significant turmoil at the moment, following the you know arrest of Nicola Sturgeon earlier this year. She'd not be charged, but uh, we're keeping an eye on that. And you know the independence movement is at a crossroads. What do they do next in terms of trying for another referendum and so on? And how do the Scottish people feel about the independence question now? And so that's the question hanging over the SNP. And yeah, Labour will be looking to capitalise on that and hopefully bring back votes they've lost in, in recent years and, and and make a statement. That's what we'll be looking for in, in this by-election. This is the juicy contest, isn't it? Not just for us uh, cephology nerds, but it's juicy. I think you have a bet with someone to say that word as many times as possible on this programme. I love saying cephology nerds. It is, it's not an easy phrase to say. It, it, it's a 10% It's a 10% majority, isn't it, for the SNP? But just rowing back a little bit, this this was a solid Labour seat, wasn't it? Not that long ago. And, and I was looking at the, the swing in, in 2015, that, that momentous election when the SNP won all those seats, a 31% swing uh, to the SNP, really quite something, much more than Labour got in Selby. 
but this is a, a, it's, it's a kind of a must win, isn't it, for for for, for the for the opposition? I, I think so, and I think it's amazing just to look back at the electoral map in say 2010, when you know much of Scotland was red. You know, Labour were really kind of in control there, and and as you say, there was such that revolution which happened with the SNP rising up in the way that they have, and you recognise that Keir Starmer needs a swing larger than Tony Blair got in 1997 to win a majority. It's a huge swing he needs, and and Scotland is just a massive part of that. So yeah, you kind of under, understate the importance of this by-election. It's interesting too, this is the first time the recall mechanism has been used in Scotland uh, too. It's kind of an interesting exercise in democracy to get people to say that they actually do want to have a by-election. Um, what, what should we take away from how that sets up this contest? Well, I thought it was interesting how, I think it was only 13, 14% of electors who did call for for the recall. It has to be more than 10%. So, you know, the threshold was was, was passed, but not by much. And uh, yeah, it's a relatively new mechanism, isn't it, this, this recall petition? And yeah, it, it's for things like this, where an MP gets suspended in this way, constituents have the right to say, okay, let's have a new MP, and that's what's happened here. So, um, yeah, kind of democracy in action. Um, uh, Joe, d- d- just talk us through the, 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 the broad detail, the broad brush of the, of the polling in, in Scotland at the moment. I'm, I'm not asking you to predict exactly how many seats will change hands at the next general election, but, but how, how is it looking for the, the main parties in Scotland? Yes, yeah, so YouGov had a survey back in May which suggested that the Labour would go up to, say, 24 Scottish MPs compared to the one they have now if a vote were held at that time. So that's the that's the the level of the poll that they have in Scotland at the moment over the SNP uh, to the point where they would win those seats. So, yes, the opinion polls are looking favourable for Labour. I mean, that was a few months ago now, but uh, if anything, the SNP's turmoil has continued. So uh, don't, don't expect too much shift from that. Uh, so, yeah, that's what the polls are suggesting. And has Scottish Labour done much in terms of regrouping after obviously as we know lose, losing all those seats a good few years ago that they've kind of haven't managed to make much inroads in recent elections they have been regrouping that's right and labor have already selected a candidate for this by-election so they're kind of ready to go you know, mm. they, they saw this this coming you know gordon brown still a very influential figure in the labor party he's been working a lot on you know how to win back scotland so yeah it's a big part of labor's thinking behind the scenes you know what's the strategy got to be uh, and how are we going to win and how, uh, what's the polling like for Hamza Youssef? Obviously, uh, a, a new first minister and following, you know, what, a, an incredibly impressive politician in, in Nicola Sturgeon. So a very tough act to follow. What, what does the polling say uh, amongst Scots? Yeah, the polling has gone, I think, fairly sideways recently for him. I think people are looking for, you know, what's the next step for the SNP? Will will Nicola Sturgeon be charged? And, and how will Hamza Youssef tackle that question of independence which I talked about you know what is the next step do you have a wildcat referendum and no one's talking about that but that's an option or do you you know go back to the party and and try and have a kind of democratic exercise and decide what should we do next that's what everyone's looking for for him and that's the test he faces now okay Joe Mays politics reporter thanks so much for joining us the details of that Uh, sophologists rejoice you and we'll have more by election I'm not saying it again I've been told (laughs) off Uh, we love it okay um (laughs) That, I mean, look, it's one of the things that we're going to be having to watch out for as we're trying to piece together what the shift in the electoral map is going to look for. And as we we're just hearing from Joe there, it's a good moment to check in with how things are are moving in Scotland and what will be a really key battle for the Labour Party. It's actually a perfect test after we had the, the you know, the Lib Dem Tory battleground in the southwest. We had that seat, uh, two seats, in fact, Labour versus Tory in Selby and in Uxbridge. And now we've got an SNP Labour one. So it's almost as if they've been picked specially. You are literally excite. rubbing your hands with glee at I, the prospect. I am quite excited by this by-election. Okay, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen.
This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineers were Marufa Hussain and Rich Sabnani. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.